because probably my biggest pet peeve is looking at athletes doing movements that are more advanced than they've really given them uh, themselves enough base to build for, right? So if you're peaking up here with movements, but your base is only this wide down here, you're gonna be in trouble. And the more we can expand that base, the better we can peak, but also uh, not just performance-wise, but longevity-wise, the more that we can keep repeating those kind of efforts safely and effectively. Welcome to the Run Form Podcast. I'm Bobby McGee, running mechanics expert. And I'm Matt Pandola, your run-specific strength coach. Matt and I have been working together for almost a decade on some of the top athletes in the world, and we've decided to share that process with you guys. Hey, welcome back, everyone, to our Run Form podcast. We are talking all about strength endurance, again, with Ryan Golick. We want to be able to give you as much information as we can about how to improve as an endurance athlete. And although we tend to focus a lot on the physiology, the strength components, the mechanical side of things is really the other half of the equation to us. So hopefully you're going to learn a lot about how to make improvements with our strength-based programming and with our expert over here, Ryan Golick. Ryan, how are you doing today, buddy? Doing well. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me and buttering me up and making me sound so important. Second time in the show uh, being a guest here for Strength Endurance, although you were a part of previous podcasts with our Pandola Project series going back in the day. I mean, geez, you were part of, I think, four or five different podcasts, and we were doing those a few years ago. So we've been doing this a while, and people can actually check out those former episodes with Ryan Golick. Just Google that, and you will find those right podcasts. Up. Yep, yep. Uh, lots of good stuff that we've talked about in the past when it comes to mechanical loading. I think we have a great episode on the foot-ankle complex. I remember a lot of people really loving that. So yeah. Search it and find it. We're there. Listen to it. That's right. Good. All a part of this series that we're talking about now, though. And first, I want to just have a little bit of a chat with you, Ryan, about the last podcast we did was our first podcast on this series. And we definitely had a lot of, I think, really good um, bullet points about why strength and mechanical strength is important. So listen to that episode, that first episode, if you haven't already. But let's recap that just a little bit today before we get going into the meat and potatoes of what day one looks like, right? So why do we strength train as endurance athletes? Don't we just want to do more running, do more biking, more swimming, or what it is that we do for our skill sets? Why, why do we need to do anything else, right, in your opinion? Well, let's kind of go back to the bullet points that we finished with on the last podcast. There's three main reasons that I look at this as an important factor. Number one is what everybody wants. We're giving you performance benefits in the aspects that general aerobic training is not going to give you. We're giving you a better connection to the body and an ability to recruit more muscle fibers in different aspects of your race, whatever your particular sport is. We're improving your power output. So where you need it, you're able to have that little extra kick, that next step, that push. Secondarily, we want to fix some of the stuff that that over repetitive motion is doing to your body, whether it be postural, whether it be getting tight and locked in the hips, whether it be 
poor activation or control of the torso or your pillar. Third is what we really want to look at is from the standpoint of an off-season is we want to give you a more strength that you tend to lose if you're only working one general energy system. So we look at an energy system for an aerobic athlete where you're primarily using one fiber type and you're just being able to have that continuous go. And we're giving you those other possible fibers, those type twos, those explosive fibers that all can work in conjunction with each other because we never live in one system. We're always accessing a little bit of that power output, a little bit of those that CP system, a little bit of that glycolytic system in conjunction with that aerobic. So although in a long distance movement pattern, running, cycling, you're going to be primarily in that aerobic state at any given point, you're going to need to pull some of those different energy systems. And that's really the importance of where this strength is coming from, not to necessarily give you more aerobic capacity, but to give you those other aspects that you're missing. So, so I'm going to give you an example about my own history, my own past. Okay. I'm going to tell a little story here. Let me tell you a story. All right. And this to me, I know our listeners are going to relate to. They've, they've all had a story like this. Okay. Man, we only have 30 minutes, just so you know. I, I believe me, buddy, I could take definitely an hour to tell the story, but I'm going, I'm going to keep it short and sweet. And I'm going to tell you that, first of all, as a young athlete, a young runner, I was not your, I was not good, we'll say, at other sports. I wasn't picked first in gym class. <laughs> and okay, so over time, I started to realize, wait a minute, I joined the basketball team. Every time you miss a shot in practice, you have to run a lap. Well, eventually I just showed up to practice, started running laps because I knew I was going to miss right. shots yep. anyway. Right. Like, coach, Matt, come in, you have to take a shot. Okay. So I realized that I was, well, I had an ability there. And when we had field days and stuff, it's like, well, geez, Matt can run. So yeah, I did gravitate towards that. And I do believe your body kind of finds the sport, but also your interest, right? Your your passion towards things starts to really get you excited about running out the door. And eventually I was doing that without anybody telling me to. And I made a lot of very uh, quick progress as a young athlete, all right? So I had, I think, that trajectory that a lot of people do experience where Everything is kind of just building nicely and it's all progressive and I'm now getting faster and running more and getting faster and running more. And then I'm told back in my day, especially endurance uh, runners, they did not do strength training really. And so our version of strength training is maybe trying to push out uh, some pushups mm -hmm. or something like that, right? And so I ended up doing a lot more hill work, hill repeats. I remember my coach telling me, well, this is going to the only real strength training you need. And I still think to this day, that is a common theme that hill repeats, right? That's going to be great strength training. And it is a great version of strength training. All of running really is strength training. But to your point that when I started to get niggles or insults that turned into injuries, running up those hills as fast as I could was still working more on one system and wasn't working on the other planes in particular. So my piriformis, right, that deeper muscle in that, um, in that glute area or deeper in that glute area, guys, 
started to, I think, get a little bit dominant in external rotation. I started to feel on my right side a lot of pain. Eventually, that became uh, a nerve problem that I had. And, and I think the sciatic nerve issue a lot of people have dealt with in the past. So that's an example of how just doing hill repeats did not help me get well-rounded and did not support my long-term goals as a runner. And eventually, I wasn't able to run you know, as long or as fast. And I started to suffer the consequences of not having a balanced body, if you will. So yeah, I just wanted to give that as an example of where I wish I had been doing uh, different planes in my strength training and not just running hills as fast as I could. Is that does that yeah. relate to you too? Do you have any? Uh, that, I mean, that took up quite a bit of time. So my story would be a lot shorter. Uh, you know, in general, I think as athletes, no matter what direction we went in life, you tend to train to the sport and not train to be a better human or athlete. And I actually just read a quote um, by Jim Wendler, who is a big strength coach. And his big thing is 90% of people and athletes just have a poor general conditioning and they tend to just be performance driven. So that GPP or that general preparation is really poor in most people. Now, in strength sports, they tend to say that that's your general aerobic. In endurance sports, that's usually the strong point, right? Your overall aerobic capacity is there. But GPP to me, and especially when we're discussing it in this endurance training podcast and with this program, come down to what is your muscular system, your stabilization system, your symmetric control of left to right, front to back. Are you balanced? Are you conditioned to be able to sustain the many repetitive motions of whatever your sport is, knowing that it's one-sided then the other side, one side and the other side, one side and the other side. You have to be able to control those motions and they've got to be close enough that you're not going to get that one-sided overuse repetitive thing. So our program really has to revolve around the biggest bang for your buck in creating these symmetries and this strength and power development revolving around those symmetries. Yeah, I like that. The capacity conversation, I think, is always one that I need to revisit with athletes when I first start working with them. So in other words, if they are exceeding their capacities... They're either going to be overly fatigued, under-recovered, right? Are we really over-training? Well, we're probably under-recovering. That is part of what I think a lot of people are considering these days. But when we do base strength work, we are trying to get stronger. And I don't think of it as necessarily just something that you're throwing into the mix on top of everything else you're doing. So I do like to look at a period of time when you have lower overall volume intensity, or in other words, I'll give an example about the marathoner that was just on the podcast, Ryan Peel. He did the Chicago Marathon, and we are now starting him off with his base training, base strength work, and he's running five hours a week this week with his base strength. But relative to what he was running, that is now putting his base strength a little bit more to the front seat. So I like to remind people that it doesn't have to be 
an entire base phase that you're getting this in, but at least a period of time where you can start with um, minimal effective dosing to really get the most out of your strength and then build from there and continue to keep that concept in mind as the year progresses. Now, I think it'd be good to actually talk a little bit more about the actual uh, sessions themselves. What does week one look like? And we'll start with week one, day one today and give people a little bit of an idea about how we design programs like this for our endurance community. Yeah, when you talk about a program like this and anyone that has done general strength training, whether it be tearing a page out of a magazine or working with a personal trainer that maybe isn't a specialist, a lot of times you see this really long, extended 12 to 15 movements, three sets by 10. It's just a very generic, broad template. But what Matt's talking about is the goal is not necessarily to be a better strength trainer. Your goal is not to be better at weights. Your goal is that what volume you are given within this strength program makes you better at your sport. So when you're talking about Ryan Peel, you're saying, oh, well, he's putting on, still running. We're still, we're still out there. It's just that the volume is less. So we use an analogy we talked about earlier today where you only have a certain cup filled with energy. So your body fills that cup through rest, through food, through you know your downtime, but you only have so much of it regardless of how much you get. So every time you run, every time you cycle, every time you lift a weight, every time you don't sleep well or you get in a fight with your wife or your husband, you take a little bit out of that cup and that energy is down, 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 down. So if you're looking at a program where you're spending 90 minutes in the gym and then you're going to go out and you're going to put another two hours on the road and then you come home and you're kind of wound up and you stay up until 1230 and then you get up at five with whatever reason, all of these components are taking out of that energy cup. And by the end of the week, that cup is empty and you're in a deficit. And that's what we try to avoid with a program like this is giving you this, as Matt said, this lowest effective dose to be able to give you the most bang for your buck and still give you the opportunity to have a buffer revolving around your work as an athlete, your work as a human, and the variables that come into everybody's life. So when we look at this day one, this week one, we look at a very basic template. So our template looks like primers, primary development tools, right? And then we get into a little bit of accessory work. The reason we choose these basic things are just to start to get your body ready. So primers are getting integrated movements to just get the body warm and ready to move. Our primary development stuff is going to be more of our compound exercises, the stuff that are going to be your big bang for the buck, you're going to go in, you're going to get a lot of strength development, you're going to get a lot of power development from these movements, and you don't have to do a lot because we're going to be reasonably heavy. And within the scope of heavy, I want you guys to understand that it's not a powerlifting meet. You're not in CrossFit. What you're doing here is lifting the most weight that you can safely lift within the variables to get stronger. We want a dose that makes you adapt positively. Yeah. There's no courage in defeated mechanics, right? That's something that I've 
talked about for years now. I don't care how much you lift. I care how you lift it. So we want to be very clear here. The program that we design, it's there to help you progress and be able to build on that with more coordination control. As you get stronger, you can start to load up more and more. And then really, eventually, we get into that the faster, more concentric, more explosive movements. But we want to make sure that we are not the whole muscle confusion thing is not the goal. In my mind, I'm looking at efficiency, efficiency versus effectiveness, right? We want to become very efficient at these movements and these patterns. So first of all, let's talk a little bit about the workups, right? If you have a program that's getting your core temperature up by one degree, then we know that is the first goal, really. Just just getting the body heated up, you're going to be a lot better off in your movement patterns to follow that. But what we did is we just threw a little bit of that, you know, science in there and said, okay, here's some movements that are going to get the core temperature up, but also that are a little bit more specific to get you ready for the movements of the day. So we picked three movement patterns and we get through those movement patterns in probably about five minutes, right? And those movement patterns are repeated on the day so that you become very efficient at those, okay? But really what we're looking at is getting into that primary developmental movement. We want to have that movement where you need the most attention to a movement and be able to really focus on that movement without being too pre-fatigued, right? So a suggestion that I tend to make there is having the time of the day that you're best off to do this, right? So I'll give Ryan as the example. Ryan Peel is still doing his hour of running or so in the morning, all right? Because that works out best for him and his schedule. And then his strength training is actually later on in the afternoon. And that's when he's able to really get in good attention, good focus. He's obviously gotten in enough recovery about eight hours between the run and the strength training, okay? But for some people, that could be the opposite. They could be doing the strength training first thing in the morning. So I think, you know, you want to do what works best for you. But in this case, we're running first thing in the morning because it's getting too dark at night and he wants to run trails. So we need to be out there in the morning. And even though it's just easy running right now and it's, you know, five hours roughly for his first couple of weeks, uh, five hours per week, rather. It just works out with uh, literally daylight. So that's why we're doing it that way, right? But for other people, strength training first thing in the morning might work better. And then you might be, say, running on your treadmill later at night. So do what works for you. I think as long as you have enough recovery time and you're getting in some good fuel, you're able to focus on the workout, right? Uh, Just wanted to kind of point that out uh, because you got to make this work for you and where you can be consistent. Uh, let's get into our first real primary movement though, right? So we, day one, you will see in our program, we're going to start with a good hip hinge pattern. And we like to use equipment that's going to help us to really start with a good build. So we used a landmine for this particular movement. Yes, you can use a dumbbell with a uh, kickstand contralateral RDL, right? And that is something that you do have some options for, but we like the landmine. The landmine is actually a great um, sort of external uh, cue for us, isn't it, Ryan? Yeah. Yeah. The landmine's a nice piece in it. 
if you have access to a bar at all, you can shove it into a corner. It doesn't require anything fancy. But the nice thing is that it does actually add a touch of stability because it has an anchor, but it also has a really smooth angular transfer, transfer, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, path. Okay. Yeah. Path, path. Better word. Yeah. But when we look at that movement in a kickstand, and obviously you guys will be able to see this video, the motion really comes revolving around your ability to what we call hinge the hip. And hinging the hip is a disassociation from the knees and the ankles. It's mainly looking at how we can keep a strong center line or pillar or core, whatever you want to call it. We want to be able to move from the point when the hips connect to the pelvis. So that pelvis just starts to tip over as if it were filled a bowl filled with water. And you're going to just start to pour the water out from the pelvis. The body stays connected to that. So as I hinge forward and that water's pouring out of the pelvis, my body has to travel with me. And as a counterbalance, so that I don't fall straight forward on my face, my hips will move backwards. They'll move away from my center so that the center of gravity is always going to kind of sit over the center of the foot. So as my hips go back, my body tips forward, my spine stays straight. There is a little bit of bending in the knee just so that we can integrate the whole system. There is a little bit of hinge, a little bit of ankle motion. But for the most part, we are trying to focus on loading up the back side of the body and driving ourselves into extension while we learn how to control our core. When we're doing this, again, to our discussion earlier, our goal is that we are symmetric left to right. So a lot of our work is single-sided. You're gonna be able to identify your weak side or your strong side. And as Matt said, with your primers and you're about warming up your body, when you're ready to go and you hit that first movement, you can be super focused on what feels weaker, not necessarily what feels stiff or achy. And that's what gets us from that primer into that first primary development pattern. Yeah, I like several points you made there. But one thing I want to talk about is why do we even need to have a hip hinge movement like this, especially single leg? So a couple of things I'll, I'll mention here is that we need to develop good horizontal force, right? And so that part of the strength complex is important. And this hip hinge pattern is fantastic. It's probably our bread and butter for developing that, okay? And when we talk about hip hinging in general, when we're doing assessments and people who have done hip hinging for years and they, yeah, I got that. And okay, show me your hip hinge. And yet, as soon as they start to level change, you see actually their knee bending first, right? Or you might see that they are hinging through their hips, but then their back is just rounding down immediately to follow that that movement. And so they haven't really learned the pattern. Again, uh, if you've been hip hinging for years, I love the landmine in the sense where it's really easy to keep sort of painting your leg down with the bar directly in front of you, keeping your lat engaged, keeping the weight, in other words, closer to your center of mass. So you're not taking that lever arm so far away that it's going to your lower back right? So those are all kind of things that I like to uh, instill in the beginning of a program like this. Do we expect the reps to be perfect? No, that's that's also why 
you will see in our program that we are building off of that single leg RDL through your progressions through a 12-week period of time. So by the time we get really explosive, we have that movement, the engrams really down. It's more visceral. It's starting with what we kind of refer to as uh, conscious incompetence, right? Right. We, we might be at that phase right now where we need to start to really focus on the movement, but eventually we're unconsciously competent and it's just automatic for you. And that's a, a beautiful part about starting a program where you do have movements that are uh, giving you some assistance in the direction of uh, connecting the dots, if you will, that you really need to establish so that when you are further down the line, you are executing really good efficiency without even having to think about it. And it's just really ingrained. And that's part of those engrams that we talk about. Yeah. I think a simple way to look at this, and we'll eventually get into a lot of details and explanations and uh, the little what could go wrong in these movement patterns. But I think what's important to look at of the do's is, let's say, let's take running for an example. Matt talks about this horizontal force, right? You're propelling yourself forward. That is initiated through what we call ground reaction force. So if I'm running and I plant here, that ground reaction force, that power down starts to propel me. And you'll see the body as I propel myself forward goes into an extension pattern, okay? So the hip hinge is this motion right here. And if we go into that motion and we power down through that ground and we propel as if we're pulling the ground back behind us, you'll see that the force we create from that point is very quickly translated into your sport. So you may look at that and go like, well, that doesn't look like running or cycling or swimming. But what we're training is actually the amount of force going to the ground and how it moves us in through a horizontal pattern. And you'll see a lot of that happening in this program to be able to help you become faster and more powerful in the pattern that your body should already know how to do. Yeah, perfect. You you gave a very good uh, example there where we're talking about how we're controlling our patterns. And in that control, in that position, this torso is moving as a unit together, right? So in that concept, we don't want to see that. <laughs> I won't use the pens. You don't want the pens? I think, I think that was great impromptu, though. Mm -hmm. He just grabbed some pens and went to it. And so, you know, ultimately, just feeling that, though, in the, in the beginning and understanding that the main thing is learning how to lift, again, before how much we're lifting and really starting to feel those connections. And that's, I love landmines for that. I, I, even with athletes that like, we'll take Ben Canute. He went through all of his retesting for next year. And we're already working on his build up to the Kona Ironman world championships. And so ultimately I know that even at his level training with me for three years now, we're going to start or touch upon these basics again so that we can just make sure we reestablishing some of these patterns before we start lifting heavier. Now, being his third year, he'll go into our 2.0 version of this kind of thing. But ultimately, just taking a little bit of time 
to establish those connections and really feel those connections. Uh, that's where I don't look at using a landmine as uh, being, let's say, easier than a dumbbell. In fact, when I use the landmine, I feel it more than when I do it with a dumbbell, especially if I haven't done it in a while, right? Right. So let's, um, we'll move into just the, the sets, the reps, you know, uh, why we chose sort of the, you know, the overall, um, uh, I, uh, the progressions that we did within this phase. And so, uh, ultimately we want to look at having you do enough accumulation in the first week where you do get a chance to establish these connections. So I don't look at paralysis through analysis. I do want you to be safe and effective but really just registering, did I feel a good connection with those repetitions? And then if you are, say, doing uh, 20 total reps, right? So that's what we start with. Like, let's start with 20 total reps. How many of those reps did we really feel like we were establishing good connection? Be picky about that, I guess I would say. Yeah. So you'll see when you, when you approach this template that we have in the first week, most of the movements are developed around this total number. And the reason we have that is because if so, you get so fixated around in this set, I have to get this certain number and you choose a weight that's a little too heavy or a little too light, you tend to just power through however you can. What we want in this first developmental week is pick a weight that is a little bit challenging to do a handful of reps, but there's no magic number in those reps. I want to feel my way thinking about the cues, thinking about the video, thinking about the position that I can feel really strong, really stable, and as Matt said, really connected to the movement, connected to the glutes, connected to the hamstrings, connected to my torso. And the first set, I might get six, seven reps. Then I'm going to take a rest. Then I'm going to come back into it and I may only get four reps. So if I had, you know, if five was my goal and I can only do four based on a fatigue, I'm going to try to grind out that fifth rep, and now I'm creating a bad motor pattern. The first week is about creating a good motor pattern and a good connection. So within a certain degree of leniency, you want to hit this total number of reps, this 20 total. If you're doing 20 sets of one, it's probably not going to be as effective. So we have it set as trying to keep it within five sets, which means, yeah, you're shooting around you know, four to five reps a set or for every time you come back to it, every set. But your first one might be seven or eight. You go, okay, well, maybe I'll go a little heavier. And then it's going to be maybe three or four. And you're going to live in that and try to continue to feel connected, but also giving yourself enough resistance that you can gain from it. If you grab a five pound dumbbell and you're like, eh, get it, but I could do all 20 right now, you undersold that movement. So you have to pick a number that gives you enough stimulus that you're going to feel like a five rep is the goal. And if you get five good reps, that next set within a reasonably short recovery period, which we have kind of cued into our little circuit, shouldn't be more than five. You shouldn't go five and then magically get eight. You might do that the very first time you do it because you were unfamiliar with the movement, right? The first movement I go, ah, I'm all weird and awkward. And then I go, oh, I get it. And then that weight's way too light. But for the most part, every progressive set should have an accumulated amount of fatigue. You shouldn't be able to do the same amount of reps the first set as you did on the fifth set. If you did that, 
you undersold the weight that you were working with. Yeah. And I think looking at, at first, taking a movement like this that you may feel like is really complex, even newer to you in these patterns, but you have more points of contact, you have a little bit more assistance to feel these things, but you're also keeping in mind that you're switching legs, right? We're going single leg on this. So you might start to feel, geez, on my right side, I felt pretty strong and connected, pretty coordinated. On my left side, geez, my foot keeps shifting back and forth all over the place. I feel like I need to go a little bit uh, slower, a little bit lighter. And you get an opportunity here to start to recognize where your more challenged side may be. And then from there, I would look at suggesting that you're emphasizing or paying more attention to that challenge. And you have plenty of time to respond to that challenge the way that we built up this program. So that way, when you get into the next phase, we do give specific sets to where you say you're going to do three sets of four to six reps. But by this point now, you have really established your weight and your your control, right? Your coordination in these movements. So I think the last part to really uh, talk about here is tempo because tempo is something that I feel like is really oftentimes poorly understood. Um, athletes in general <clears throat> like to do things fast. And I find that even concentrically, we tend to focus a lot on that, right? We want to have good power output, good force production. Okay, so how quickly can I do a movement? But in the beginning, I look at that, uh, well, we have a 2-1-2 tempo, right? So in other words, taking it slow down, pausing, taking it equally slow up, that's 2-1-2. And that would be in seconds here, right? But you're just looking at five seconds, in other words, to do a repetition. Whereas you look at the average person, they might go through, say, uh, 10 repetitions, and that only takes them about 10 seconds on their first days, 10 to 20 seconds. Yeah. And and really here, what we're looking at is it taking, say, uh, if you're going to do four good quality reps, that's 20 seconds, and then maybe switch legs and do good four quality reps and just keep building on that, right? So I really, I, I like to emphasize that tempo needs to be really even controlled in the beginning and not trying to do reps too quickly. But again, you know, as you go forward in our phases, then we start to get more explosive in the concentric and we start to work a lot more on the overall speed of the movement, but also the complexity of the movement. We start to have a higher demand for stability and then a higher demand for your overall power, right? And that's how the phases build from one month to the next. I think you know, just that should give you a good idea of how that starts on day one. But to give you an example with your total uh, repetitions that you're hitting that first day, you're doing 20. The second day, which would be your second week, really, you're doing 25 and then 30. And, you know, ultimately you are building on, again, that concept of accumulation first. So by the time you get to the next phase and we say, okay, now we want you to start with three sets of four to six reps, you're going to be really right in a good zone just to start off because um, I've done a lot of camps and communicate a lot with endurance athletes. The ones that do lift, they are um, being told, hey, you got to go heavy on your off season. And although I agree with that, there's two main things. Of course, again, that accumulation. So you do get coordination control. You you start to learn how to lift uh, properly and also giving your body just some time to build up into a phase. 
But the other thing that I kind of really look at there is um, that single leg work so that when we eventually get to more bilateral work and we have both both of our uh, sides working equally strong because we did address the challenges on one side versus the other. So there's a lot of layers to that and that's all built into this thought process. You know, um, ultimately your ultimate goal is to have that strength support your skill set. And so as endurance athletes, we know that um, I'd say maybe with the exception of if you're a collegiate rower or something like that, that you're going to be a lot more concerned building up that single leg strength and capacities there. So um, I would wrap this part up with, you know, how we complement your primary movement patterns. So we picked another couple of, um, I think, really good movements that are going to start to give you more uh, upper body dynamic trunk control, but upper body emphasis. So we have a pull down to push up, we call it. So we're starting to learn how to really execute that, but we do that on more of an incline, working your way down towards the ground. And again, really focusing on connections with higher repetitions. These are um, other variables, but accessory work like your uh, goblet side shift lunge. We'll finish with that one for today. I think it talk about the variables there, but I wanted to at least sneak that one in today because it does address our frontal plane and we're not just working on front to back. And so this really ties it in really nicely. And when you're doing a goblet uh, side shift lunge, we're really exposing ourselves into positions that we really have not stressed or worked in much at all or it's probably been a long time since we have right and so it's perfect time to start to do it in in base work okay so when we talk about what's called the frontal plane which is confusing because you think it's to your front but it's actually moving side to side we do that so if we take running again as an example you're doing it only you're doing it from a control aspect so as soon as one leg comes off the ground you have two options. One, you're either able to control the hips laterally and hold that position, or you don't. And if you don't, what ends up happening is that leg elevates, that hip on the elevated side dumps down, and our hip kicks out to the side. We have poor stability in that frontal plane, and we bleed energy because in our goal is that all of our energy is distributed like we described, straight down and propelling us straight forward. So when we look at a lateral pattern, even though we're moving in and out of it, we're working on strength and control of those stabilizing muscles in the line that will hold the pelvis nice and neutral. So you might ask, you, okay, well, why don't I just stand on one leg? There is a component to that, and there are single leg balancing things that work this. But we want to have a relatively good, strong ability to make transition from left to right. And making the transition from left to right requires us to have a certain amount of strength moving in and out of these. So you'll see the accessory work is what complements our power patterns. So Matt talked about that first phase in the second circuit and the second part of the circuit. And you'll see in these that we typically will go from an upper move, up lower body movement into an upper body movement, which is to some degree of built-in recovery so you can get back to that first movement again without an over-accumulation of fatigue. But if we look at those movements, those are movements that we can argue 
directly translate into performance. Our accessory work is the stuff that we have to directly translate into control, injury prevention, um, asymmetries, the things that are probably hindering that last 5 to 10% of performance. So if we negate those and we're only working in this performance world, we're going to end up falling into these same overuse traps that we get when we're just out doing road work or rowing or cycling or swimming. So this frontal plane is all about us being able to create control dynamically in that side-to-side pattern that helps us to control our body in space when we're moving forward. So when we look at this pattern and then we look ourselves through the variables, you'll see again, certain amount of set maximum to get to a 15 number total. But if you look at our tempo, our tempo is actually slower here. So we're moving really slow and controlled into these patterns because we want to own them. We want to do what I like to call own the position. So at the bottom of that goblet side shift lunge, you want to be able to stick it, hold it, and then control yourself out. And when he's talking about athletes wanting to move fast, I've always lived by the philosophy with early stage, either athlete or training is speed hides need. So if you're moving quickly in and out of these positions, your body will sort it out, but it may not sort it out efficiently. And you won't see it or feel it if you're racing in and out of this. And the other aspect that we want to look at one more thing on this is this is a time under tension scenario. So if we look at different energy systems, there is an energy system associated with a certain amount of time. So your immediate CP system that's giving you exploited stored ATP is only about five to 10 seconds. That glycolytic system lives up into that 90 second, even creeping onto that two minute window. So if I look at this program and I say, okay, my lateral shifting lunge is 15 reps at a three second down, one second hold, three second up. So a total of seven seconds. We can look at that and say, I'm at over a hundred seconds of time under tension there. So I am creeping towards a two minutes of exposure to this exercise. Whereas if we get into a plyometric series in your specific, in your sport specific, you might do five second little single leg box blast that's going to take three to five seconds and you're exploiting absolute power and that immediate energy system. And here we're looking a lot more at building tissue tolerance, breaking some tissue down, doing a little bit of hypertrophy work, and then really tuning into how the body can feel its way through these different patterns. So that's really how those all those variables come together to create this one massive stimulus. I love that speed hides need, right? Uh, because that explains my hill repeats in the beginning of this conversation where, yeah, that was getting better, but it was not um, really making me aware that I had to work on these other things. And when we picked all of these movements We'll take those goblet squats as an example. You just said something important to me too, is you're holding time under tension, that kettlebell in that front position with your spine slightly flexed. In other words, compact and holding that dynamic trunk control the entire time we're moving more actively, dynamically 
from the hips down, right? And so that is an exposure that gives you that tissue tolerance and that ability to go longer. So when we say get stronger to go longer, there's a perfect example of that. And then when you do move towards these heavier lifts and when you move towards the plyometrics, now this is already visceral. This is already automatic. So we get the most out of those plyometrics and it's actually giving us the benefits we're really looking for because probably my biggest pet peeve is looking at athletes doing movements that are more advanced than they've really given them, uh, themselves enough base to build for, right? So if you're peaking up here with movements, but your base is only this wide down here, you're going to be in trouble. And the more we can expand that base, the better we can peak, but also uh, not just performance-wise, but longevity-wise, the more that we can keep repeating those kind of efforts safely and effectively. So to finish this off, final thoughts, I would say keep in mind that we made these videos 20 seconds long. I listened to my audience and we wanted to give you these much quicker uh, versions of our workouts and how you could go through uh, a progression without spending too long looking at these lengthier videos. So 20 seconds. But what we are going to start to do is release these education station videos as a part of the program to explain more of the do's and don'ts behind the movement. And that's something I'm excited to show people that really want to learn more of the why behind the movements. And for others of you, you may find that you just you love just watching that 20 second video, you're getting the hang of it and fantastic. So we're just trying to make sure that we check off the boxes for everyone's needs here. Um, yeah, Ryan, any closing thoughts? Yeah, I think when you're looking at this, the one thing and and Matt kind of uh, said something that spurred in my brain. When you're an athlete, you're putting in the work to earn a podium. When you're on this program, you're putting in the work to earn that next phase. And if you're thinking that I'm there and I can jump into it, that's like saying, you know, I've never gotten on a bike in my life, but I better be at least first, second, or third when I get to the end of this race. This is a race, and this is a race for your ability to train yourself to earn that last phase. And that last phase of this leads you into the first phase of our sports specific and our in-season work. And if you haven't done the early work, the way that the early work is prescribed, the body will not be ready to actually benefit from those more advanced movements and those faster movements. So don't be in a hurry to get these workouts done. Don't be in a hurry to get to that next phase. Everything stacks on top of each other so that by the time you're ready to perform, you've done the work and you're ready to be at the top of your game. Yeah, and speaking of you know being in a hurry, I want to mention that with these base training progressions, the first week, the first um, period there may take a little bit of more review, may take a little bit more practice, right? And you may look at spending more time on learning the basics, but we wanted to make sure that it wasn't too much time. So we didn't throw 12 new movements at you a day, right? We, we focused really on six movements that we could really build off of. And then off of each week, again, making those movements a little bit more complex, a little bit more demanding on your, uh, your strength and your energy systems. So that's the beauty of it is that as you build through these progressions, 
then you're going to have less and less time that is required to get through these sessions, which means that that fits in nicely with your training because we know that you're going to start to add more volume and start to add some intensity as your off-season progresses. And so that will fit in nicely with that exposure for you. And ultimately, with 20-second videos to follow, you can, I think, review that a few times and really get a lot of those detail, details down. But there'll also be some bullets to remind you with the program so that you can really start to make yourself aware of maybe one of those bullets or two that does seem to be working for you that you can just go right to in your bank and say, okay, now it's been week three and I've got this down. Now that even I'm going into the next progression because we're just adding a variable, but we're not exposing ourselves to completely new or different movement patterns, I'm able to really build off of this now. So I'm really proud of what we did there. To remind you, uh, you guys there is that over the last especially, well, 20 years for, for me and Ryan apiece, so 40 years of experience working with athletes and knowing that this does work. And I'm very uh, proud of what I've been able to accomplish with athletes over the years, but even prouder of what I've been able to accomplish with Ryan and our experience together with these athletes. So this program is available on pre-sale right now. It is 30% off, so uh, $140 will get you the endurance strength program we're talking about. But feel free to uh, let us know if you have any questions. Get those emails out to me. Just go to Pandola Project. And any emails I get, I will answer you directly. And we might even talk about it in future podcasts. That helps us help you. All right. So to next time, guys, thanks for listening. As always, thanks for listening to the RunForm podcast. And as a reminder, we offer a totally free movement improvement assessment on our Pendola Project website. Here, you can get your own personalized protocol that will help your running today. So give that a try. Also, Bobby and I are experts on any question app where you can ask us, well, any question. So reach out to us directly there. Finally, if you learned anything new today, don't forget to share it with your compadres and leave us a quick review. That really helps us a lot. All the links you need are in the show notes below. Till next time, have a great run. Well, that was that was awesome. Yeah.